0: You know, this morning as I listened and sang along and worshipped God, I thought, you know, what what a beautiful thing. You know, years ago in the worship of Old Testament Israel, they used to sacrifice animals, right? And so it, it talked about that being an aroma to God. You know, today we offered up that aroma as you by faith sang to His glory. God is pleased with that and delights in that. That's a neat thing that we are able to participate as God's people in such, such a blessing. This morning, you know, the scriptures are clear about the importance of understanding these things as he's given them to us. It uh, was Paul that told young Timothy, Take heed to yourself. Watch out what you do. And take heed to yourself and to your doctrine, what you teach. For in doing so, you shall both save yourself and them that hear you. Now, obviously... He wasn't saying to Timothy, that's how you get saved. His point was, the way you're used in the midst of the body of Christ, and Timothy was there at Ephesus, at Ephesus, is taking heed in how you apply what God has given us in Scripture and being certain to interpret it correctly in order that you look at life from the view of the Scripture. And so this morning, for all of us know this, that as we gather up every Sunday or we're back with Pastor Keith in discipleship training or wherever we might be learning Scripture, it's not just to gain knowledge about Scripture. Your life depends on it in many sense, in a large sense. And those who have the responsibility of teaching it, my, my, I'd rather have an untrained doctor working on my heart than an untrained minister giving me the gospel. You see, the doctor's error cost me a few years, a pastor's area cost me eternity. And so, as we think of the importance of it this morning, Ephesians 2 is a very vital truth for you and I as we live out our life in viewing the context of the world in which we live. You see, the world's not going to tell us that these are the ways and these are the struggles that men face. There are all kinds of reasons that people give today for the way people are. Well, it's the way they were born that way. I had one politician in our community concerning an issue that was of utmost importance, and he said, well, it was the way they were treated in the womb. Really. And all through the history of men, we've had many illustrations after illustrations of the explanation for why men do what they do. Why men and women live like they live. Why you and I make the choices we make. We've had Freud and Rogers and others who are, um, they do psychiatry and other things try to explain men. But you know, the scripture's clear about it. And we'll see here the importance of it. And notice chapter 2. You would think if you were lining something out or being responsible for an outline you would put a man's need before you would give him his remedy but Paul in Ephesians did just the opposite, didn't he? you notice Paul starts in Ephesians chapter 1 with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ and then 15 times following that He helps us understand every blessing that we enjoy from heaven. Blessings like this. He laid his love on us before the foundation of the world. And his love was laid on us with with such, in a way that we, you and I, would be holy and blameless before him. Not only was it a passing desire, but it was an assertion that accomplished its end. He adopted us. The Bible says He redeemed us. He gave us a hope an inheritance and worked effectively in us with a power demonstrated by that of Christ being raised from the dead. What an amazing thing. As we read that, we're taken back by all that God has done for those like ourselves who He has redeemed. And so Paul closes the first chapter with a prayer. And his prayer is that our hearts would be enlightened, that we might be able to grasp these things sufficiently. But every painting needs not just the main portion of the painting, the figure, but it has to have a backdrop, doesn't it? Every painting has some type of backdrop. But it's important that the backdrop doesn't distract from the main point of the painting. Well, in chapter 1, we had the main point, clearly put forward to us. We can simply come away from that chapter like Paul himself in its writing and say things like this, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what chapter 1 was all about. In it, the theme of it, and I'll have to say in um, high school and some of my teachers, if they were here, would agree with me. That my only goal in English was to get out. Sadly, many of you can tell that as I speak. But I found that to be a quite foolish thing. But I do remember certain things about English that came and were helpful in college, in Bible college in particular. I thought I'd escape writing papers, but little did I know that's all they want you to do in Bible college. But they wanted this thing called a theme. What's a theme? Just read it and make the best of it. But there's this thing called a theme. The guy that writes this particular letter or whatever it is that you're reading has a purpose. And your goal is to figure out what his theme is else you're likely to misinterpret what he's saying. So he's going to put a main point and then build around it. So you'll see in in Ephesians, Paul did that very thing. And the theme of Ephesians is how God is uniting all things in Christ. That was His plan from the beginning. He's bringing together heaven and earth, the Bible says, in Christ, which is a mystery. As men would watch history unfold, the last thing they would say was going on is a unification. They would say division, certainly. Look at the world. Do we need any more testimony than today? Look around us. Does it appear that anything about unification is going on? Certainly not. But Paul's clear in Ephesus that the point of his writing was this, that God in Christ and His whole purpose from the beginning was to unite all things in Him, to take two men, a Jew and a Gentile, bring them to God through one person, Christ. He was going to take the world and unite it, What had been lost in the garden in Adam's fall would be restored in Christ. And that was God's design. And that is exactly what was going on and what was happening. Do you think about that often? Especially in our day? Do you look around and think, man, boy, this thing's all coming together. This is just like it was intended, Shirley. My, my. That's not the way it's happening, is it? You would look around and say, this is a mess. And I don't know what's going to become of it. I can tell you what's going to become of it. He says it here, right? So in this particular place, we find that God's theme here is unification. But what came in and created such a difficulty... We see in chapter 1, as I said, God's designed to redeem men, not only Jew, but also Gentile. God's design in Christ, this mystery unfolded, a bringing together in one heaven and earth, destroying all principality, rule, and authority. And then we see in chapter 2, and he uses this word, and. And I learned in English, that's a conjunction. And it continues, kind of. A fault. It's not necessarily a contrast. And so, after sharing all of these things about what we've experienced in grace, painting that picture, he now lays a backdrop. And I tell you, it's a dark one at that. But what it does do, when we grasp and understand these four verses, it puts the amazing back in grace. You see, it emphasizes those words. It puts them in bold italics when you see this idea that God paints for us in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to there start. And if you would look with me at the first thing that I want you to notice. You know, the reality is as you grow older and you experience some aches and pains, you just get used to them, right? Right? Some of you young people don't know what that means. But some of you know that just merely moving incorrectly creates a real difficulty. You don't even have to do anything. You just move wrong. But you know, those pains become pretty regular and so you think nothing of them. But there's a day that might come in your life, or some of you it has, where there's a pain that's different. And you well know it's different. And so you go to the doctor. And you get some tests done. They investigate. And then you have that all-important consultation. And then you ask the doctor, You know, we found something. And what's your question? How bad is it? Just how bad is it? That's the question that's answered in Ephesians 2. After having clearly indicated the glory of God in the face of Christ in saving sinners, here's, here's what he wants us to know. Just how bad was it? Was it like a kid who swallowed a hot dog and was choking and you just did a little Heimlich on him? Was it somebody who cut their arm and just needed a few stitches? Was it someone with gangrene whose arm could be removed and stop the infection? Doc, just how bad is it? That's the question we answer here. And so, very often in this life, what will come to us is we'll get clouded in this understanding, especially as we look at our children. They're sweet and nice and kind most of the time. We look at others and we see the little lady who bakes cookies for the Girl Scouts. Sweet. Gracious. And then we come to verses like this and we we say, How can these things be? How does this go together? It's really important for you to listen this morning and understand just how bad it is. So that you can see just how great a deliverance is. That God in Christ has brought the pass on your behalf. It is so important. The backdrop's not white. It's black. Black. Dark. Horrible. That's what this says. Notice with me in verse 1. It says, and many of you will appreciate this, because nowadays if there was a time when the walking dead, that was kind of an oxymoron. That was, that was impossible. But what do we have everywhere on every TV now? JD, the guy I work with, Cobb, he loves it. The zombies. So at one time, this was an odd thing. Folks that are walking, they were dead. But the verse here indicates that the reality of humanity, and as you look at life and others in it, as you view those that are your family and extended family, neighbors, children, and even your own life, do you view yourself in this way? Or when you were in unbelief, did you see yourself Quite this bad. This confusion is difficult. Folks that are dead are normally not walking and folks that are walking are normally not dead. So how do we put these two things together that are so opposite? Well, we know what the word walking means. It means living, doing life, day-to-day activities. The things that every person that's born in this world does. That's what walking means in this case, and so what does it mean to be dead? Obviously, then it's not the physical life in which we speak of here. What is it? It's the spiritual reality of which we're speaking of here. It's so important to remember that there is in man. It's very, Paul thought in Romans seven when he said concerning his flesh, there is in my flesh no good thing that dwells. This is what he's speaking about. Man is born, as Romans 5 clearly puts it, as difficult as it is for sometimes us to embrace it, the reality is, is all of us are born in Adam without exception. Without exception. And when the world tries to reinterpret or place some type of philosophical understanding On man and his condition, excuse him in some way. It can very often in the life of those in the church cloud their view and understanding of this text. Folks, those who are born into this world in Adam have no spiritual life. There's not the least bit there. There's not a spark there. They have positive enmity against God. That's what the scriptures teach. Here's the truth of it. There is no taste, no sight, no desire, no energy, no longing, no love, no delight, no feeling, no sense of smell, no excitement, no expression in the person born in Adam. That's all of us. And just like with a man who is dead and you try every way in the world to create this in him, you're helpless. Can we agree on that? You can poke him. You can set him up. You can stand him up. You can give him food. He can't smell Jeff Cutiller's bacon. He can't taste his Boston butt. It tastes nothing like it does to us. Do you view yourself and the world in this way, spiritually speaking, as you understand this spiritual truth? Of God's redemption? Man in this particular condition, how bad off is he? The Bible makes it clear. There's not the vestige of spiritual desire in his bosom anywhere. You can't find it. It's nowhere woven into his DNA. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. And so you and I, must understand we're not looking for a cure merely for something like, and it's all on our plate today, COVID. You see, there's vaccines they hope for something like that. There's surgeries for cancer. There's all the different chemicals they put in your body to try to kill those cells. I'll tell you, friend, the reality of this verse is there's nothing Humanly speaking, to cure this at all. Were that not enough, and man, after looking at that, you and I would say, that is very, very challenging. That would be plenty to lay the backdrop for everything that we understand the gospel to speak and say. That's something like getting, sir, you got cancer. Where? Well, you got it in the brain, you got it in the lungs, you got it in the pancreas, you got it in the liver. It's everywhere. So the reality of this verse is it's beyond that reality. So in your life and in your home and with your children, it'll put you to prayer, won't it? I'm not asking for something small from God. I'm asking for something impossible. Not only is this man... Re- born into a situation where he can be said actually walking a walking dead man but also notice this he's walking totally deceived he follows the two things here in Scripture that clearly indicates quite another difficulty not bad enough that he's simply dead the Bible says he walks according to the course of this world now just what does that mean it's the intentions and designs and goals of those who hate God and run opposite of who He is. They've charted a path, and guess where the world runs? You and I, when we were in it, we follow them. You might pride yourself on being a leader. You might sing a song like Elvis did, I did it my way. Well, your way is the broad way that leadeth to destruction, that every man travels. You might look to your right and left and maybe don't see anyone at this moment, but reality is the whole world's traveling that path. And they all think they're doing it themselves, right? Didn't you think that? And I thought that when I was living in sin. I'm doing what I want. I'm living my own way. Nobody's telling me what to do. Oh, really? Nobody's telling me what to do. You see the desperate situation of which the world finds itself. It's like a roller coaster. Now, many of you who ride them are very thankful for this reality. But it paints a picture of what the world's about. You see, a roller coaster has two rails on which it rides, doesn't it? You enjoy it. You go around and around. You're glad it stays on the rails. I'm sure you are. I'm glad it does too. But the reality of those living in this world, it's just like the roller coaster. It's just how fast the operator pushes it. It's when he stops it. In one sense, you're along for the ride. There's no way that can be that way. It's exactly like that. And that's exactly what these verses say. Your children are on that roller coaster. You were on that roller coaster. All of humanity, irregardless of ethnicity, background, financial position, educational level, everybody. Not only the Bible makes clear are we as humanity on that particular roller coaster, Roller coaster. But the one who's operating that roller coaster is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now operates in the sons of disobedience. You might sit here this morning and say, Well, I don't believe in the devil. That's all right. Not my, you might not believe there's anybody operating the carts either. That's okay. It's sad. It's untrue. But the reality is, the Bible's clear that the devil is active in the world, I can show you place after place in Scripture. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. He put in the heart of Judas to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. He's about one thing, killing, stealing, and destroying. Christ, there in the moment of temptation, the devil said, bow down and I give you all the nations of the world, all the kingdoms of the world. My, he has some stake or lot in what's going on. Now, lest I leave you with the confusion that the devil's operating things, he's not. He's totally under the jurisdiction of the king of glory. But the reality is those who are in disobedience, who are in Adam, born that way, living dead lives, walking the path of the world, are being operated clearly, the Bible indicates, by the power of the devil. And so here we know that we're in that class, this statement, sons of disobedience. That's us, isn't it? And so we find here not only are we dead, and not only are we deceived, and not only do we have operating around us and in us this spirit that the Bible's clear about, who raised his prideful head in heaven and sought the place of God and was removed, and Jesus said he saw him fall like an eight, like a light a bolt and fr- a bolt of lightning from heaven. I get that right. It's Him who operates now, in opposition to everything God's about. And for us together as a church, and for those who delight in and love the gospel, we must understand there's an enemy that's formidable. And it's even in Scripture, the reality in the book of Ephesians, where God makes clear that much of the work of Christ is to destroy the work of the devil. You need to understand, you're no match outside of Christ for Him. What What ought that cause you to do? Well, it ought to cause you to press into Christ even more, shouldn't it? Your king, your defender, like David cried out for help, you and I should be those who often find ourselves crying out. For help. Is this all? Well the Bible says no. No it's not all. As a matter of fact. It's not all at all. And so we see. That not only is the devil at work. Seeking to do the very things. Of which. We would think. We would oppose. Right. How many of you here. In your heart has said. Well. Brother, I'm just a victim. I can't help it. I remember growing up in the... I was born in the 60s, but in the 70s, there was a comedian who made much of this statement. Some of you are too young to remember this. Some of you know. Uh, Flip Wilson. Anybody remember what he used to say? The devil made me do it. He was using it as an excuse. Just the way the world does. The devil made me do it. Here's the sad part of it in this particular statement in Scripture. Notice with me in verse 3 of chapter 2. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Boy, what an interesting statement. What is it that those who have been saved used to look like? How is it that they used to make their decisions about life, purchases? Who they're going to be a part of in the way of friendships or relationships? How they were going to do business? How they are going to raise their children? What they were going to believe about history, past and future? What guarded and guided those types of decisions? What says it right here? See, it gives us an explanation of how all this works. How many of you would sign up for following the devil? How many of you would sign up to be someone that is actively disobedient to God? Not a one of you. You don't like to think... And neither did the Jew when Jesus looked at him and said, You're of your father the devil, and of his works you do. They didn't like that at all. I wouldn't have liked that in my unbelieving state for someone to have looked at me and said, You're following the devil. I said, I'm not following the devil. I'm doing my own thing. What will every counselor tell you is your goal with the person across from you when you're giving them counsel? What's, what's your goal? To give them merely what you think or to help them come to a conclusion about what you think and they think they came to that conclusion on their own. Right? Duh. Nobody likes to be told what to do. So you help them come to the conclusion you want to help them come to by thinking they came to that all by themselves. Boy, they get up and say, wow, that was great. Leave. Right? So... Just how does this work? This is exactly how it works. At the seat of your being, you're a passionate person with desires. God's created you like that. What God created you for is those passionate inward desires to pursue Him. To love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Does that sound passionate? Man, that sounds passionate and that's exactly the way you were designed and when the fall came guess what happened to those desires oh they just all of a sudden quit no now they're misguided you're not pursuing loving him and those in his image you've changed you're after the things that bring you personal pleasure More than anything else. No matter what it costs someone else. Irregardless if that's what God wants or not. That you see. What characterizes the world. And what characterizes us as an unbelieving fallen people. Guess what? We're not a victim of the devil. Merely. We are in some sense. But actually we're complicit. Isn't it when you get your little boy or little girl in the room and say all right. Were you in that? No, no, Dad. It wasn't me. They, they wanted to do it. And I just went along with it. It really wasn't me. I, I wouldn't have done that. That's us, isn't it? Adam says, Wow, it was that woman you gave me. It's, and we've been doing it ever since, haven't we? It's somebody else's fault. Listen to the world today and all the mess we got going. It's somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. This verse clearly cleans that away. Strips the ground bare of all of those rotten bushes and says, oh no, oh no. By the passion of your flesh. That principle in you that you had from birth that rendered you dead in Adam, that very principle led by the world down this path of disobedience, moved along by the energy and work of the devil, you love it. That's the sadness of it. Right? I love it. You say, how can men take drugs? Why do men live like that? Why do women make that choice? Why do sinners live like that? It stirs them for a minute and they want it more. You know because you've been there. And I've been there. And so we're moved along by the passions of our strong desires. And we make those choices because we want to. Our want to is all messed up. I follow the devil in my unbelieving state because I want to. I can be quite classy when I'm following. I might be a professor. I might be the lowest pagan in the world. We watch the three men who've been executed this past two weeks. And what do we say? They did horrible crimes. We look at that and say, well, I know they were following the passions of their flesh. I know who put those things in their mind. But then we look at the cultured man who sits in the class and teaches kids and he's quite a cultured individual and he pays his taxes and he does life and he's a father and he's a grandfather and he's a neighbor and he does those things what appears to be quite well. The reality is both of them are operating in the same spring that motivates them. Passions of their flesh. You see, we read those words and very often we think just the most horrible of those who live in this life and who practice these things, but brother and sister. Satan cares nothing about whether you're sitting on death row in Terre Haute or in a classroom at Harvard. He matters not whether you're cultured in your sin. The point is this. As long as you pursue your passions that are opposite of those of God, he cares nothing about it. But notice what's involved in all this. Your feelings or your emotions or your heart, that verse says, and your mind. So... This week, if you've noticed on the news, they tried to get the one man removed from his execution. Why? They said, what about him? He's not mentally fit. Now, you might try that in heaven one day if you're here and you're unbelieving. You say, I'm not mentally fit. The Bible says here you're you're mentally engaged. Your mind and your body are together in this act. Of pursuing your desires apart from God. This, you see, is the reality of lost humanity. And to close all of that section up, he's not done yet. Is that by nature we're children of wrath? You understand what that means. Some would say, well, you're born neutral. You come into this world, and if you do enough good, you're gonna make it. If you do enough bad, it's weighed out on the scales. No, brother and sister, you're born into this world children of wrath. Apart from Christ. What a bleak picture by nature. It's natural. So, when you come to understand this verse, it can be... And Romans 5 explains it very well. And if you have interest, you can go there and see we can say concerning this particular section, it's the walking doomed. I mean, I'm telling you. These folks, you and myself included, having by birth entered in to this particular condition, they could have put on your birth certificate, child of wrath. Boy, that's hard, isn't it? But you know, you and I aren't free to take God's word, dissect it, and keep the parts we like. And discard the parts that don't fit with our philosophy or psychology or whatever it is we want. This is reality. The very words here leave us with this truth. It's nothing you signed up for. It was not a choice you made by the fact of our birth. We are in Adam. Our natural birth. When we say natural birth, these women in our congregation say, "I don't want that." We're in the twenty-first century. We got John Lynn over here. We can give us some drugs that we don't feel that thing anymore. I understand that, and I'm with you. But when we can talk the word natural, it means without any intervention, right? Nothing outside of us. It's just the natural processes. It's natural. It's what this is, the very ideal here. By nature. By nature, you're good. By nature, you're right. By nature, you pursue God. No. No. And no. By nature. You're under. And I'm under what the Bible indicates here that the unbelieving world is under. What Peter said, flee in the day of Pentecost when he preached this wicked world, knowing that it's under judgment. It was the preaching of John the Baptist, it was the preaching of Christ, it's the preaching of the apostles. It must be the preaching of those in this day, the evangelization of the world. The reality is they need Christ because there's coming a day of reckoning. It was in Athens that Paul stood and said, This unknown God, I'm going to let you know who he is, but he's chosen to judge the world in righteousness through the one that he's raised from the dead, Jesus the Christ. Why do we look around at the world and say they need a Savior? They need to feel better about themselves, they need more self-esteem, they need some little physical healing, they need to be out of poverty, they need to think more of one another as far as nations. No, they're facing judgment. You see, they're going to stand one day before God. And without Christ, they are by nature children of wrath. Your children and mine, me and you and all the world. And the writer of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Isn't it? So this morning after painting such a bleak picture, and friends, it is bleak. There's no way around it. Let no college professor, irregardless of his learning, let no preacher in any pulpit, let no angel from heaven, nor any other tell you anything less than what these truths are. Paul said in Galatians, If any other gospel be preached than what I preach, let them be accursed. And it's true. Friend, this is reality. It's not possibility, it's reality. As difficult as for us, it's the truth of the scripture. The reality is that the gospel comes in in this simple and real way. In this dark and difficult scenario for humanity, God's intent was to deliver those in this condition. Man, what a deliverance. You know, for you or I to jump in the water and save a kid in the pool who's flailing away, that's one thing. For you and I to jump in the lake right off the boat, five foot from the boat to save the kid that's up and down and bobbing, that's quite another. For you to swim a mile into the ocean and save guy that's trying to float in his back, But for you to go 4,000 foot in the middle of the ocean with a man under the rock that's been there a month and save him, what is that possibility? You cannot paint this as bleak as it actually is. And so what does that mean? That verse 4 says, but God, we don't leave this morning hopeless." As a matter of fact, just the opposite. Full of hope. God has in Christ intended to save those who are the greatest of sinners. That be me. And I know in your heart you could say that be you. He chose to save to the uttermost those who would come to Christ. But God being rich in mercy with His great love wherewith He loved us even when we were dead in our sins, hath raised us up together in Christ. You see, friend, that's why the gospel and amazing go together. It's the depth of a man's fallenness. It's the reality of his situation. It's the difficulty of his moment that makes the necessity of the gospel so great, so beautiful, so important. I'm telling you, we can't explain it in all of its hue and color, and do it justice, can we? We can't paint the picture of the gospel in all of its beauty like it ought to be painted. We speak and see through a glass darkly. But when we grasp even a portion of our condition prior to conversion, this gospel, friend, is certainly nothing less than amazing. And when Paul seeks to describe This deliverance, he uses this word, riches. But God, isn't that a beautiful statement to a helpless sinner? What I'll tell you this morning go and do better? Go and do better? No. Here's Christ, here's the remedy for sinners. Here's the hope for the dead. Here's the hope for those who are following the track that the coaster's on and headed to hell. Here are those who are sons of wrath. But God who's rich in mercy, rich. He's not just a little gracious. He's not just a little kind. The Bible says he's rich in mercy. And what moved his mercy? What moved him to move heaven to save sinners? Those who hated everything he was about. The Bible says love. Love drove mercy to send Christ to do the unthinkable. Love drove mercy to do Christ to do the unthinkable. To stand in the place of sinners and drink down the wrath of God on their behalf. It wasn't that God could simply say, I'll just pass over those sins. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good God. I'm just going to look them over. Not at all. His plan upheld His justice. His, un, His plan upheld and magnified His mercy and love. What an amazing thing this morning. I hope that above and beyond every other thing that you realize this morning that those in the, in the situation of sin can be, have been, and you've experienced the deliverance. And may this life be for us a display of our thankfulness for His grace and mercy and might we never, never lose the word amazing as we describe it to the world and live it out before them. And you'll do that only as you remember just exactly where He brought you from. And you'll preach the pure gospel to your children knowing they're in this condition. And your neighbor needs you to tell them rightly. Don't give them a placebo. That's nothing but a fake pill. They need Christ. Nothing less than Christ. They need Him in all of His fullness. Give them Christ. Father, we're so thankful this morning that we sat under the hearing of your word and the gospel and that we're those who've embraced and seen and you've worked in us. Not because of us, but because of you, the riches of your mercy. Driven by your love, we seek Christ in his beauty and we rejoice this morning. Lord, help us to make much of him in all that we do and say. We beg you in Christ Jesus.